I'm Sarah. I'm Steve. And I'm Erica. And this Easter tide, even though we've not always been starting with the traditional greeting of Christ is risen, he is risen indeed. indeed. Uh, We have been taking a look at how the community of Jesus comes to life. And we started way back with the obvious Jesus and his own resurrection brings us to life. We've talked about how the early church and the community in the New Testament era moved from a sprint to a marathon and how we are maybe called to pace ourselves as well. We talked last time about how to avoid uh, burning out in our lives and how what things help bring us back to life when we're on the verge of that, either as uh, pastors or uh, people in congregations or just in general life. So where shall we go today about what brings us to life? So today we're going to be talking about not just maybe what brings us life, but what brings life in general and talking about creation care and the importance of creation care for us as Christians um, and not just for those folks that are really love the environment, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. but something that's, that's what we're called to do as well. Yeah. Yeah. I I feel like this is the kind of topic that um, hopefully or maybe seems obvious to people in the present moment in the 21st century but in christian history especially maybe the last several centuries was not always clear that christians had a particular um obligation to care for the created order and for the world uh and that a lot of times in christian history again maybe the last 500 years or so uh we have tended to be culprits of it's ours to despoil as we wish because god put us in charge so we could do whatever we want with it rather than no, we are tasked with helping creation to thrive uh, and to help it come more fully to life. And does that seem like a, a fair assessment or am I being overly critical of our forebears? I think it's fair, but I also <laughs> tend to be overly critical of our forebears. So. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure that overly critical, but I think a, a certain healthy prophetic amount of, yeah, we have sometimes screwed things up. Um and that that may overlap with other ways that in the last uh, 500 years or so, Christianity, when it gets wedded to empire, screws things up. Um, and maybe this, this uh, in a sense, goes back to the storytelling we do at the beginning of our scriptures about what humans are for or what our place in, in creation is for. And whether you tend to tell that story as humans are made to have dominion and dominate creation or humans are created as stewards of creation who can both enjoy the proce- the produce of the garden, but also are there to tend the garden. Uh, that both can, that I, and I guess maybe where where you tend to fall on that may dictate or may shape how you think about the Christian's role or Christian community's role in caring for creation. So maybe that's a place to start. Like how how do you approach this subject theologically? Like what where where do you go, or what tells us that Christians do or don't have a responsibility for helping the rest of creation to thrive? Um, so while Erica looks up the verse that she's looking for in her Bible, I'm just going to spat off the top of my head and not have any citations. So fairly <laughs> early on in the Bible, like say the book of Genesis, we hear the creation story or two creation stories of how God created the earth. And from that, I learned that a God created it and that also God created us to be in partnership with God as much as possible in caring for the earth. Mm -hmm. There is um, Mm -hmm. 
there is one specific verse that says that God gave us dominion over the earth, which mm-hmm. I like to translate more as stewards, mm-hmm. that we are placed to take care of the earth and all that is in it. Sure. Um, so the animals and the plants and, you know, the ecosystem, because yeah. it's a pretty delicate balance. And once one parts part of it dies, the rest suffer. Mm-hmm. Um, like, I think that we've all heard or seen the news stories about the bees being in trouble mm-hmm. puts us all at risk, right? Mm-hmm. Like, if we lose our biggest pollinators, you know, what are we going to do? Like, yeah. so many of the plants that give us life rely yeah. on those pollinators. And if we don't yeah. have them, then we're not going to have those plants for very long. Yeah. And so it's, you know, our planet is so diverse and so complicated, but yet we all rely on each other. And so if one piece goes, mm-hmm. we all suffer. Mm-hmm. I think it's it's helpful that you, you raise that question of how we interpret or translate that image from the uh, creation one and two stories that, yeah, that some translations use the word dominion. And maybe that's because we are lacking other good words for what, what it is to be in a position of maybe supervision or overseeing things, but that doesn't mean you get to run roughshod over it. Like when I think about right. like, if you've got a really nice garden and you asked who's in charge of the garden, you might say, well, a gardener is in charge, but like, they're not there to despoil it. They're not there to say, and I can rip up anything I want, but like the gardener's job is one very much of servanthood of caring for and letting the plants be what they're meant to be. So yeah, you get to enjoy the harvest, but also your job is to help the plants grow and to thrive. And that means caring for and seeking their well-being, not just that you're a dictator or a tyrant. And so, like, even the idea, to me, this gets at, like, that our usual ways of thinking about authority and power, Jesus has a way of inverting them. So, you know, Jesus talks about, you know, if you want to be the greatest, you have to be the least. You want to be the 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 leader, you have to be the servant. Like, that's gardening imagery, too. You want to be the boss of the garden. Okay, you're not yelling at the plants, of, you know prop your feet up and be your footstool you're you're in there on your hands and knees pulling weeds and pruning and putting fertilizer on and serving helping it to grow to be what it's meant to be and getting to enjoy it while you do so i guess i think like that central image is pretty pretty important stuff from the biblical witness erica did you find what you were looking for you know, it was a verse that sarah quoted i was just trying to figure out it's um genesis 128 mm-hmm. and in a couple of different versions i'm looking at um the word that they use to translate in the English is subdue. And with like you all, I, I'm not a fan of that word. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was trying to look it up in the Hebrew. And unfortunately, I think that is the, that seems to be what the true meaning of the word is. But maybe the idea of what subdue means was different when Genesis was written than what we often think of that word meaning mm-hmm. now. Well, I, I guess if you think about it in the sense of like historical context, you know, when there was a lot more wilderness than there is now, mm-hmm. yeah. subdue kind of makes sense, yeah. right? Yeah. You go and you settle in a place and you subdue that land, as in you plant gardens, you plant mm-hmm. fields mm-hmm. full of crops, mm-hmm. you create a place for your animals to graze in safety, you know, mm-hmm. that that kind of makes sense. Yeah. It's just now we we are at this place where there is no wilderness left. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And like, so what is there left to subdue? We've subdued the land to death. Like that's mm-hmm. 
we've kind of, the pendulum has swung too far. And maybe it's even that recognition that like, it's about bringing order to what might otherwise be chaos. And like that, that, that allows for the idea that there could be places that are still kept and preserved wild, but then there's other places where you cultivate and put things in balance that, um, can, uh, again, maybe the idea is like keeping any one thing from overtaking the whole thing. I mean, like if I just let my, my, even my own yard go to, uh, and I, I leave it alone and don't do anything to treat it or take care of it the harmful weeds are going to take over the whole thing. And then the, you know, the, the variety of plants are going to die because it's all going to get taken over by when, you know, whatever uh, invasive weeds there are. And that sense of maybe subduing is not like I must destroy or dominate or conquer, but more like bring some order to the midst of it. And again, to me, that suggests the imagery of a gardener who will prune things, but again, it's not like to intimidate the plants into submission, more like this is what helps this plant to grow better is I pull off, you know, I cut off the branches that need to be cut back so that it grows in the, even training it in the right direction too. Like I notice in our yard, if some seasons I'm really good at pruning back this plant or that plant, and then I just give up on it, it grows in such weird cattywampus wild ways that aren't really good for the plant and aren't aesthetically pleasing either. But that sense of you can bring order and beauty to this and that maybe that's a piece of humanity's role is discovering the potential and bringing beauty uh, to these raw ingredients in a way similar to like the way an artist takes pure pigment and arranges it in such a way that now we've got a painting or a composer takes there's only so many tones, but they arrange them in a, in a way that brings beauty out of them. And since we're talking about the garden and Eden, so often when we hear that word garden today, we think of pretty flowers and you know, sometimes we might think of a vegetable garden, but we have to remember that for Adam and Eve, before sin entered the world, that was their life, you know, was the fruit and the vegetables in the garden. Um, they were vegetarians. Um, and so, yeah, you have to take care of that. It's not just keeping something pretty. It's tilling it and, and using it and pruning it so that you have something to eat. And and that sense of like, this is mutually beneficial in caring for these other things. This provides your same way that you were talking, Sarah, about caring for bees, not just, Mm -hmm. oh, the poor bees, but the bees well-being is inseparable from our well-being also. And so it's not just out of pure altruism, we should take care of pollinators, but that's also how the rest of the world, which we depend on for our own life, continues and thrives. And maybe that recognition of, especially it's clear in spades in the Genesis 1 telling, how everything is woven in with everything else, that there's this interconnectedness all around rather than um uh, that you can harm one thing and it doesn't affect everything else. Certainly Genesis one makes it clear. So the whole thing is, it hangs together and it's that wholeness, that shalom at the end that God goes, that's really good. <laughs> mm-hmm. Do either of you know the poem, um, uh, good bones by Maggie Smith? Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I won't recite the whole thing, but at the, at the end, she talks about, um, selling her kids on like caring about the world, even though lots of terrible things happen in the world. And I will spare trying to recreate phrases from it, but the, the title uh, good bones comes from this line at the end. So she, she's, she's talking in the poem about what things she doesn't tell her kids about the danger and the terrible things in the world, but also trying to sell her kids on there's good in the world that's worth holding on to. And she says, 
Any good realtor will prattle on or chirp on about good bones. You could make this place beautiful. You could really make this place beautiful. And that idea, of like, obviously, when you're trying to sell a house, like, you know, a house has been through a lot of stuff, you know, needs some repairs. The realtor's job is to say, but you could make it beautiful. And I, I, the way she ends the poem sort of suggests, like, this is what it is to be human, is to recognize for all the ways that things are ravaged or sometimes wild and chaotic or barren or whatever, that we can be a part of helping bring beauty to things that have, that need care and and tenderness even though there's also terribleness in in the world too in so many ways that feels to me even though it's not really written as a, as a poem of faith like a not bad picture of the the call of of the christian community in particular to say yep there's a lot of places where it's hurting or broken and yet our calling is you could make this place beautiful it's got good bones so i like uh, that because it's such a good reminder that we we can do something like mm -hmm. i i think it's really stressful to pay too much attention to the news right now especially with the environment because mm -hmm. it feels like my entire life scientists have been harping on we need to turn this around now we need mm -hmm. to turn this around now we're not doing enough we're not doing enough and there's only so much that any one individual can do mm -hmm. you know like my family recycles we compost we you know we do we have solar panels we, we we're doing all the things that we can possibly do and yet it's still not enough because we're just four yeah. people um yeah. in my in my family but it is like but there is good bones still we can still make it beautiful and i think that that's I don't know. It's a nice word of hope. Yeah. And I appreciate the way you frame that because to me, it feels like that also helps avoid the danger, the ditch on either side of the road when we talk about Christianity and, and creation is on the one hand, there is a temptation to think it's all so much bigger and God's world is so much more powerful and more, more complex than human beings could. We can't possibly make a difference. And therefore you can end up either in the fatalism of so don't even try because human beings can't make a dent in these complex systems or sort of like um, you're free to do whatever. Go ahead and just spoil it because the creation is so awesome. It'll rebound no matter how much you destroy it. And like that feels like that's irresponsible. But on the other hand, it's arrogant to say like we have so much control. God's totally God's given the responsibility to us and we can we can do whatever we please because we're in charge rather than seeing our place as middle manager. So like that sense of being stewards or being gardeners or whatever is recognizing we are, we are stewards of what the, the crucial thing about being a steward is it belongs to somebody else. It's not yours. And that sense of you were there to care for, but you don't have final ownership of. And so you do have a responsibility. You don't just get to say, burn it all down. Who cares? Cause it's mine. I can do whatever I want with it. And that sense of that middle space of we can do some things, but not everything. And we can do some things better when we work together. So work together. Um, but to me, that feels like a lot more faithful place to land that avoids either of the ditches on either side of the road. And we're also called to advocacy. Mm -hmm. Like I, I feel like, and especially in the United States, so many things have become political, 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 Politicized. that word yes that shouldn't be like mm -hmm. i don't understand why it, politics are in it in the way that it is like yeah. it shouldn't be political to stand up and say we should take care of our planet mm -hmm. like i feel like that shouldn't be 
politics but for some yep. reason it is and the church has a tendency to get really hesitant to involve itself in anything that might be political yeah and go ahead erica no i think part of the reason why that's become political is because of our tendency at least in our culture here in the states of religion having such a large say in our politics because to go back to Steve's criticism towards the beginning of our conversation about, you know, how we're, we didn't really care about the earth for the last 500 years, because theology for a long time thought has taught that, well, this place is just going to burn up into a ball of energy and God's going to create a new heaven and a new earth. So why do we care what happens to the planet? Um, and that I personally, I believe is poor theology. Um, but that has infiltrated into our politics like so much of the Christian faith has for better or for worse in all kinds of different circumstances. It seems to me too, that one of the differences between contemporary Christianity or the la Christianity of the last several centuries and like ancient Israel is that there was this sense in like, even to read the commandments in the Torah that have a, a clear concern for care for the whole creation. There is a sense of how it's all bound up together in your whole way of life. Mm -hmm. So even things like Sabbath year were about like, you've got to let the land rest. You can't just milk it for mm -hmm. how do you maximize your profits? That there was a sense of the land needs it. And it, it wasn't even about like, um, it, 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 it's bigger than just you human beings. God cares about the rest of creation or uh, my goodness, the, the Noah story. I mean, what, what else does that story say, but that God doesn't just care about human beings, but God says, Noah, I'm going to send you all these animals. Like, so that clearly the, the biblical witness senses that, that God has an investment in non-human life and that we can't just treat the created order as um, a bunch of empty resources. that are there for for the plucking for us, but they're, it's, mm -hmm. it's something that we belong to as much as uh, we think we're, ourselves are separate from it. And the, the way of life of ancient Israel sort of understood that sense, uh, maybe, maybe because they were so much more an agrarian society and they understood yeah. we are bound to the well-being of the land and the crops and all that kind of thing. And so to, to treat fields badly, to salt the earth of your enemy, you don't do that because that harms this thing that other people depend on that God mm -hmm. created to be good. And that sense of shalom is always bigger than just my country will stop fighting with your country, but that all of creation being at peace with the rest of creation and its mutual thriving Again, like those are things we haven't always uplifted from the biblical witness uh, and uh, to our peril. Um, can I ask if you think that there is um, another level? We talked about the, the challenge and limits of individual or household by household care for creation. There's things we can do, but it feels limited. Sometimes it feels like there's big picture stuff that the most we can do is advocacy kind of stuff. Um, and that's trying to make changes in laws or national policy or whatever. Are there ways that as the larger middle-sized community that we find ourselves in church congregations, are there ways we can be a part of caring for creation that helps our communities come to life that, that are worth naming or things that you've seen or things that you want to try? What, what, what could that look like at a congregational level? I've heard of churches, um, especially I, I seem to hear about this in more inner city areas, but it makes sense just as much out in more rural areas like where I am and where you are, Steve, and possibly where you are, Sarah, of doing community gardens. Mm -hmm. 
you know, so it's not only a place for the community to gather and to be mm-hmm. in fellowship with one another as they work on the gardens, but also as a way to feed the community mm-hmm. and provide that fresh produce that so many people are unable to get and afford because yes. let's be honest, fresh produce is a lot more expensive yep. than frozen vegetables, canned vegetables, or yep. junk food of any sort. Yeah. So there, go ahead. I, I also think with that, uh, what I would like to start seeing in community gardens or to explore to see how feasible this would be is how feasible would it be to have the community garden be the home of a beehive? Mm-hmm. Like, oh, yeah. Because like, as previously mentioned in just this episode, our bees are in trouble. And mm-hmm. I think having community gardens have a bee- beehive how great like and have part of that community garden be flowers to give them mm-hmm. pollen um encourage like no mo may where um is a new to me concept but it's um the idea of a couple of households in a community like 10 or so not mow for the month of may to have places where dandelions grow and other like early mm-hmm. pollinator mm-hmm food sources mm-hmm. um you know for bees and so what would it look like if community gardens had bees yeah because it would be yeah. good for the plants it would be yeah. good for the yeah. community like yeah. win-win situation unless of course somebody like right next door had a had a bee allergy yeah. um mm-hmm. but yeah i i really appreciate how an ideal like this like completely exemplifies that intersection of the the natural world and the environment as well as the well-being of human beings in it and that like fresh produce is one of those places where not only is it good to have good green space and it's good just for our mental health to have places where there's fresh air and just not more buildings or whatever but also yeah if you're in a community where the there's a lot of cheap processed food but not a lot of access to fresh vegetables and you can give those out to people or make them very reasonable so that people actually eat them that goes a long way to changing people's you know even even our our physical health and nutrition side mm-hmm. of things as well um we had um one of the the local uh leaders of our the the county's um uh, uh, traveling um, church filled homeless ministry family promise came and talked to the one church I serve earlier this year. And he was talking about um, sort of a, a publicity thing he did where he, for one night was going to sleep in his car uh, and sort of document, what is it like to be, to sleep in your car overnight if you don't have a place to stay. And he also limited himself to like, you know, $5 that he could spend for the whole night sort of imagining, okay, if, if I'm on limited income, I don't have a, a house or something like that. And I've got only this much and I'm going to be parked out at this parking lot at the local gas station. And he said to the congregation in a way you could just see like the bells going off for some people. He's like, they either have one tub of mixed fruit uh, or you could buy three hot dogs for that $5. So if you're hungry, what are you going to pick every time? But the, and it was just sort of this awareness mm-hmm. of like fresh produce, which is obviously in the big picture better for you. And you're not filling yourself with as much chemicals or processed or whatever is cheap and uh fresh vegetables are 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 expensive comparatively and cheap processed stuff is available and if if you're always at that place if i've only got five bucks you're always we're always going to be tempted to buy the stuff that's 
long-term garbage, but short-term fills the, the, the hunger in us. And if then that's what you're modeling for your kids, because that's all you've got, and they're also sleeping in the car with you, you know, how easy it is for whole communities to be stuck in that, well, we don't have any good grocery stores with fresh produce. All we have mm-hmm. is this convenience store. And that is true, not just in, uh, uh, real, real, uh, uh, inner city urban places that are called food deserts, but in small towns where there just isn't big enough to have their own local grocery store, but they've got a dollar general that has a bunch of processed stuff. Like that. So sometimes you sort of see this characterized, well, that's a city problem. People just need to live out in the country. No, in rural areas, sometimes your town doesn't have a grocery store. And again, there's that, I could go to the gas station, something um, that is, that is processed and cheap, but that idea of creating in our communities, a place for fresh food and for people to again, get reconnected to where does my food come from and then I had a hand in help creating it and bringing it about that does something really important and even in communities like my own that has a, a small grocery store the stuff here typically is more expensive than if you go just 10 minutes up the road the next town over to Walmart yeah mm-hmm. you know um, but for those who don't have a car right they're right. stuck right. with the slightly more expensive groceries which then again Cause you know, while they might have access to fresh produce, it's even more expensive than the fresh produce in a superstore. Yep. So more tendency to go towards, you know, the TV dinners and things and the stuff that you can get for a dollar from banquet. Sure. Sure. I guess I think too that maybe the next additional uh, moving piece, like if I could dream and and wish for things in in a church community, I love your idea of beehives, Sarah, and maybe piggybacking mm-hmm. on that is if you have community gardens where you're growing produce, if you could also a church could also host like classes on like okay, here's the stuff that we grew that we know works here now. How do you prepare it? What do you do with it? Because like that's another piece I've had conversations mm-hmm. with people on is like. If if their you know local food bank gives them you know fresh produce, but it's something that is either really time consuming or nobody exactly knows how to prepare or is really limited in its usefulness, that's a harder set. And again, it's going to be easy to go. Nope, I'm going to take a pass on the rutabaga. I don't know what to do with that, but I do know what to do with uh, canned carrots, or I do know what to do in, in, in that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, if if part of our concern is how do we help folks who are trying their absolute best to get back on their feet or, you know, a steady place. And they're already working two jobs and raising kids and their amount of time, disposable time for food and, and food preparation is pretty limited. Let's not give them the thing that takes like an hour to prepare. Let's, you know, what are the things? And if it's not just simple because it's processed, but simple because it really is easy to learn how to use or cook something that goes a long way too. There is, um, so, so my church, we don't have a community garden, but we have lots of parishioners who do have gardens. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And instead of donating the fresh produce, they will often turn that produce into soup. Oh yeah. Mm -hmm. And then freeze it and then donate the soup because then the soup is super easy to reheat for exactly yep. those same reasons. Like if you are working multiple jobs to try to meet ends meet, then you're, you're not going to necessarily have that half of the day to make a big yep. pot of soup, but yep. you do have time to reheat soup. And mm-hmm. it's like all fre- fresh ingredients, no preservatives, just fresh ingredients. It's yeah. frozen, ready to go for the next six months. Yeah. Yeah. There's something too, I think, that changes both for individuals and families and maybe whole communities 
when we move from seeing ourselves just as consumers who are helpless and need other people to provide things in cans for us or things in pre-sealed bags and people who have a hand in being co-creators or who are responsible in the stewarding of what we grow, there's that sense of ownership. There's that sense of dignity. And I helped to create this. I'm not just somebody's charity case, but I helped grow these tomatoes or I helped grow these peppers or that kind of thing. And I think about, I remember years and years ago when, um, uh, church youth group of then I was in went into inner city Cleveland with Habitat for Humanity. We we're walking around this neighborhood where they had had community gardens there. And this is decades ago now, but the people who were there were telling us like how the presence of a garden like that changed the way individual households took care and pride in their own houses differently because mm -hmm. there were these little bastions of beauty happening. And that like, sometimes it's hard to know where do you start, you know, to revive a neighborhood that feels like it's, you know, sort of been, you know, uh, left to urban blight or whatever. And like those little, okay, we're going to make this corner beautiful. And then the, you know, the next door neighbor, well, I, I'm going to fix up my house. And I like, it has a way of changing the tone when instead of somebody like paternalistically, condescendingly here, we have to dole out these things because you're, you know, too incompetent to uh, help yourself. But instead, like, you get to have a hand in helping take care of this. And then it's not like you're infantilized, but that you're empowered. And that has a way of changing the, 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 the vibe, the tone of a whole community. Maybe we could also say, like you mentioned in your own household, Sarah, that you uh, have gone to ha having uh, solar panels on, I'm guessing, on your roof. Um yes. Uh, and I'll say, too, we're having some investigations at the one church I serve about getting solar, whether on the ground or roof mounted or whatever. Uh, but that idea is like that's another leap where um, that, while it certainly can be costly, this is a time right now where there may be more resources available to help make it possible for either families or community groups or churches or whatever to um, put solar panels on. And there's almost like zero downside. It's like once you have the the money for putting it on, it's like. You, you you don't lose your hookups to the rest of the grid. So on the cloudy mm -hmm. days, it's not like you're in the dark, but you you on days when there's any possibility of gener generating electricity, it's generating electricity once you've got that infrastructure. Yeah, so a big plus side for us was that we actually had to put zero money down. Mm -hmm. That we were able to get hooked up with um, with this company that would give us a loan and they would guarantee that our loan payment would be cheaper than our current electric bill. Mm -hmm. And so we're locked in on this monthly payment, which is lower than what we were paying for electricity. And we'll pay off our um, our solar panels in like 10 years or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, and it actually kind of generates us money yep. because since we're hooked into the grid, um, we have our electricity from our borough, which is our township. And so we give them our excess electricity. So on the bright, sunny days, mm -hmm. we're actually giving the borough electricity. Yep. And then at night when the sun goes down or on really cloudy days, the borough gives us electricity back. Right. But generally we come out ahead. Yep. So, you know, with the exception of like maybe December because it's so cloudy, yeah. um, mm -hmm. you, but it all evens out. And so we, you know, just pay off our little loan every month, but yeah. we don't really have any electric bill. Yeah. And the awareness that, again, I realized that a lot of churches are not in the position to have the disposable income to take what feels like the experimental step of that. But like if a congregation is in that position and has resources or increasingly those can be even available for nonprofits, um, 
that's something that's worth exploring, both of the general sense of this could be a savings for your congregation with your utility bills, but also how does this maybe also help model good care for the creation? And there is little to no downside. I mean, like the, 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 there's, there's no danger or harm caused to the world by having solar panels. Um, and yet, like, it could be valuable for the congregation, for the community, and could be positive all the way around there. So that's something maybe to look at at the congregation or community level, too. Other things you think are worth noting about how our calling as Christians to care for the creation helps bring us to life as well as help keep creation alive around us? So I'm highly disappointed in many of the areas I have served and lived. There is not a local recycling program. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, when I lived in Marion Center, I would personally recycle stuff, but then I'd have to drive it like, what, 20 minutes yeah. to Homer City, mm-hmm. um, where one of your churches is, Steve. And to be honest, that was annoying because you couldn't quite yeah. get to the recycling center without sure. having to go past it and come back. And- yep. I, yep. Agreed. I, I did go to that exact same one. I also yep. was annoyed by that. Yep. Yeah. I mean, it was. I felt good because I was trying to help the, you know, the earth and trying to create mm-hmm. less waste. Um, but especially like in the winter months, as things were collecting, I'm just like, oh, do I have the time? Do I have the energy? Right. Do I really want to make right. that drive? Um, and does the weather allow me to make that drive? Right, right. Um, so I wish that, um, like where I'm serving now, had a recycling. Even again, if I had to drive it to Johnstown, if I had to drive yeah. it, to, you know, even to Somerset, which is like 20 minutes away. I would be willing to do that. Yeah. Um, but it would be so much more convenient if there was a program yeah. in my community or just up the hill in Richland. That um, even op- opens up the whole conversation, which probably is either a whole separate conversation for us or research on our own individually about the limits and utility of plastic recycling too, because at least I'm aware of mm-hmm. like the kinds of, of plastic that are recyclable or that you can find right now on you know large scale recycling outfits to to do is pretty limited and mm-hmm. um that uh there are that the part of part of the bigger problem is that so much of our lives we've gotten used to one time single serve you know plastic packaging for things that in an earlier time it was it came in glass and you recycled the glass I mean glass recycles a whole lot more easily yeah. <clears throat> and to look at even like our whole approach to our way of relating to the world is, is I'm, am I primarily a consumer and everything is here for me to unwrap, throw away a wrapper and then, you know, buy another or to reuse and reusing is sort of really the better way to to frame that bigger conversation and things like glass bottles and jars. Yeah. They can be melted and you can make new glass jars and bottles, but also you can wash and reuse as it is in a way that mm-hmm. you can't really with plastic. Um, and that's a piece for us to to consider too, is like, even as church, like even when it comes to maybe little things like sending home leftovers to the homebound people, when you've got extra soup or food from your meal or something like that, you know, is that something we could be sending home and reusable rather than, you know, one time or and even just those little, are we using plastic plates or paper plates or whatever when we have a meal or are we washing? And the, I mean, even those things can be part of the conversation too. I think also part of that conversation is, you know, if at all possible, splurging to buy the slightly more expensive article of clothing or shoes that will last you longer. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. I I feel like um I grew up in a family that that wasn't living paycheck to paycheck like but 
we also didn't really buy the high-end things. And so I was used, have been used to my entire life buying the $10 pair of shoes. The $10 pair of shoes barely lasts a year, if that, mm-hmm. especially when you only have like maybe two pairs of shoes, like the tennis mm-hmm. shoes and then like the dress up shoes. Yeah. But if you can like buy the sturdier shoes, because then you only have to buy one pair of shoes and it'll last you for three years, maybe. Yeah. And so then you're not throwing away mm-hmm. shoes mm-hmm. like and filling up the landfill with the cheap Walmart shoes. Right, um, right. But I also know that that's not necessarily what everybody can do. Right. But when you can right. do it, right. do. Like right. instead of buying the stuff that wears out super quickly, wear, buy the sturdier things. Yeah. And to see that that changes our sense of our relationship with with the things and merchandise around us. That instead of always like, I live to consume, when can I get a new one or another one? Because I got bored or tired of the old and that's part of the allure of buy cheap because then it'll wear out you could buy a new one and you'll get that thrill of novelty of a new buy quicker like to be become the kind of people who find something that's worth putting the time and energy or money into and being satisfied with what you have and being content with it for as long as possible rather than they made a new model i have to rush out and get a new one of Mm -hmm. whatever and there's so many voices around us in our wider culture that encourage that quick turnover uh, you need to get a new one because a new one exists now, or the old one was made to be replaced rather than repaired. And in some ways, re- rebelling against that and saying, I'm, I'm not, I don't have to live my life that way, despite the numerous voices that tell me I should. So we haven't done it all. We haven't fixed it just by our conversation, but we certainly have laid out some possibilities that I think are hopeful. Um, and hopefully these are the kinds of things you might be able to consider or try where you are, uh, either at the individual and household as well as community level. But we also want to have more conversation about things that bring us to life or the way God invites us into that work of bringing life. So join us next time here on Crazy Faith Talk. See y'all. Bye.